You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. Well, good morning. It's that time of year again in sunny, warm Seattle. If you are anything like me, by now you've received a number of invitations to special events for the spring and summer. Things like weddings, graduations, retirement parties, maybe even a family reunion or two just to keep it exciting. And these are all really special events. And just as we as invited guests send replies and say that we're going to be there and we prepare by getting cards or gifts or look for something that looks decent on us, so too the hosts have been busy. They've gone out of their way to create um, an invitation, and they're working hard to make sure that their party goes off without a hitch. So they collect these RSVPs, and they put finishing touches on their preparation. So, let's see, invitations get designed, they get sent, they get the RSVP back, they prepare food. And in some instances, depending on what you're up to, there may even be a very thought-out strategic plan of a seating chart that could look like a war room strategy, depending on what your family looks like. But, yeah, any wedding, any wedding uh, preparation involves something like that. And we do this because we want things to go off well. And when they do, they're wonderful. And when they don't, they end up on America's Funniest Home Video or YouTube. And if you're really good, you might get a spot on the Today Show. Well... For the next four weeks, we're going to be parking ourselves in Luke's travel narrative. It's a section of Luke's gospel where there's going to be a couple parties, so we're going to be invited. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, and he's preparing for the end of his earthly ministry. And as he does so, he's very deliberate about every action and every word. He's been teaching and engaging all manner of folks about who God is. And what God is all about. The good news. Messiah is here. The kingdom of God is in your midst. Now, up to this point, really, most of Jesus' ministry is kind of focused on two different groups. You have the spiritual leaders or insiders. And then you have this sort of fringe of society. The tax collectors, sinners, people kind of on the fringe. And they're the outsiders. Strangely enough, these groups don't mix particularly well. Which is kind of odd, because to Jesus, they actually have the same problem. They're all outsiders. And they all need to be brought in to the knowledge that God loves them as they are where they are. God longs for them to belong to him and to one another. So at the point of our text today in chapter 14, the tension has been rising, because Jesus has that effect on people. And we find him at a first century Palestinian dinner party. There were rules for dinner parties then, too. And in this instance, Luke, the beloved physician, gives us a delightfully humorous glimpse of men behaving badly and a God that loves them beyond compare. So will you stand with me as I read from Luke 14, 1 through 24. On one occasion, when Jesus was going to the house of a leader of the Pharisees to eat a meal on the Sabbath, they were watching him closely. Just then, in front of him, there was a man who had dropsy. And Jesus asked the lawyers and Pharisees, Is it lawful to cure people on the Sabbath or not? But they were silent. 
So Jesus took him and healed him and sent him away. Then he said to them, if one of you has a child or an ox that has fallen into a well, will you not immediately pull it out on a Sabbath day? And they could not reply to this. When he noticed how the guest chose places of honor, he told them a parable. When you are invited by someone to a wedding banquet, do not sit down at the place of honor in case someone more distinguished than you has been invited by your host. And the host who has invited both of you may come up and say to you, give this person your place. And then in disgrace, you would start to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit down at the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. He said also to the one who had invited him, When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or brothers or relatives or rich neighbors in case they may invite you in return and you would be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. One of the dinner guests on hearing this said, Blessed is anyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And then Jesus said to him, Someone gave a great dinner party and invited many. At the time for the dinner, he sent his slave to say to those who'd been invited, Come, for everything is ready now. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I bought a piece of land. I must go out and see it. Please accept my regrets. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen. I'm going to go try them out. Please accept my regrets. Another said, I've just been married and therefore I cannot come. So the slave returned and reported this to his master. When the owner of the house became angry and said to his slave, well, go out at once into the streets and lanes of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And the slave said, sir, what you've ordered has been done and there's still room. Then the master said to the slave, go out into the roads and lanes and compel people to come in so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those who were invited will taste my dinner. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Our God, prepare our hearts to accept your word. Silence in us any voice but your own that Hearing, we may also obey your will through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Parties. There's always that one guest. You know, that one. Unless, of course, you don't know, in which case that one may be you. (laughs) I was thinking about this text and um, was taken back some 20 years to my sister's wedding, where I had my first real experience with how parties can go wrong. After a failed attempt at small talk at the head table with my groomsman partner in crime who was in the CIA, so what do you do? I can't tell you. (laughs) Do you travel? I can't really talk about it. Great. I'm going to go get a drink. (laughs) So I got up, and I go out of the room, and I come into, I encounter the bright lights of the videographer, and I overhear, so how long have you known the bride? Oh, we've known her since she was just a wee lass. Oh, these jolly Irishmen are none other than my Polish uncles. I'm sure, in fact, I know they've never stepped one foot on British soil. Oh, my gosh. 
So I turn the corner very quickly and come back into the main room where I hear, excuse me, everyone, excuse me. Excuse me, I, I have something, um, I have a gift for the bride and groom. Um, I'd like to sing them a song. And so Darren went on to tell us that he was going to sing, You Don't Bring Me Flowers. <laughs> as a duet. By himself. <laughs> using the voices of Ethel Merman and Louis Armstrong. Seriously, I'm not making that up. Ask my parents. They'll be here next month. I wanted to die. Who are these people? Surely I was switched at birth. I'm sure, I'm sure some of you have stories like that. Most of us have been there. Good guests are hard to find. And our text not so gently reminds us that this is not a modern problem. Our story unfolds, as so often happens in the gospel, as a parable within an acted-out parable, as Jesus attempts to reach the beloved Pharisees with the scope of his hopes for them, as he tells them a story within their own story. Jesus has been invited to one of those dinner parties, where the dynamics are just kind of crazy. The guest list is a veritable who's who of the town, except for the one guy, the guy with dropsy which was an edema, which would have rendered him an outcast and likely labeled him as unclean, a ritualistic way of separating those with disease from those who are healthy in an attempt to stop the spread of infection to others. Let's just say that Pharisees are not likely to hang out with someone who's unclean, let alone sit down for a fancy feast with them, inviting them to join them. It's a setup. Jesus clearly has a powerful following among some religious leaders and many of the poor, tax collectors, sinners, outcasts, people that these Pharisees would really rather not invite to their table. But they do invite this one unlikely guest for one purpose only, to trap Jesus with a trick question. At issue is whether or not it's lawful to heal on the Sabbath. Or put differently, whether or not Jesus will break the Pharisaic rules associated with the Sabbath by doing what for them would be work by healing this man who's likely spent most of his life as an outcast because of a physical abnormality. In fact, to them, this man has no value, which is why from their perspective, healing him would be work and thus a violation of the Sabbath law of God. How sad. These leaders miss that touching this man and healing him isn't work for God at all. It's as tender a move as a father rescuing his beloved child from imminent danger. Who would call rescuing a beloved child, any child, work? So this rescued beloved child of God is blessed and sent on his way, very likely, in my opinion, the only person at this party to have an absolutely fabulous time. And as he leaves, a rather awkward tension begins to rise. And as often happens at banquets, banquets, awkward begets awkward. It's kind of always seemed strange to me that while Jesus is being hounded and judged for this act of mercy, nobody seems to be particularly bothered by the fact that all around them, guys are jockeying for position around the table. Ironically, from God's perspective, the most important person at this party so far, has been the outcast. Even if he was merely invited as a pawn or a ploy, he was important. But to our guest, the most important person at that party is me. It's them. 
Each one of them. And so Jesus quietly rocks the world of one insignificant man by blessing him and sending him away. And nobody else seems to notice because they're so busy falling over themselves to prove how important they are. That's really awkward. So Jesus tells a story. Only it's not really a story. It's kind of like he's teaching them a lesson. He just jumps right into the awkward fray and starts schooling the guests on how to be good guests. The party's getting out of hand. So Jesus just calls their selfish motivations for being there. They don't care about anybody else at this party but themselves. And in fact, the whole banquet is really just one political ploy after another from the moment they were invited. It's about who owes whom what. Well, they invited us to their wedding, so I guess we should invite them. He did give us those tickets last year. She always offers to take our kids, so I guess we should. Oh, man, I was in his wedding. How can we not invite him, even if his wife is just so weird? (laughs) What? They invited us? Oh, great. Now I feel bad that we didn't include them an hour. And on it goes. We do it all the time, don't we? Friends, welcome to the Junior Pharisee League. (laughs) So Jesus calls the Pharisees on it. See, they think that God is like them and that God's relational economy works like theirs. That relationships are based on merit and honor and earning the right to be or do or go. As if all of life is a holy hand of poker that, if played right, will reveal just how smart and awesome we are and how much we deserve that place of honor. These, the entitled ones, they've earned the right to be at the table because of who they know, what they own, what they've inherited, what they've earned, where they were educated. And they totally missed God's grace right there. These called leaders among the people. And to add fuel to the fire of awkwardness, Jesus just reminds them of God's heart for all people, even the ones that make us feel uncomfortable because they're different And they don't look or act or sound like us because they're so far removed from us on a social spectrum, be it physical, maybe spiritual, social, cultural. Jesus' story screams into the dysfunction unfolding before him. It's not about you. It's about God and what God longs to do through you. But they miss it. Now, remember that God's covenant with Israel was always intended to bless them in order that they would be a blessing. God never chose Israel to be the blessed chosen ones to the exclusion of the world, but really for the sake of the world, so that everyone around them would see how Yahweh interacts with them and think, wow, I want to come to that party. But Israel forgot. They forgot that God chose them to be conduits of grace to the nations. And that grace is for all, and that you can't earn it, and therefore, you aren't entitled to it. And that as mere channels of blessing, it's really not ours to determine who gets it and who doesn't. Let me say it this way. To be chosen in grace is to see ourselves not as containers for grace, any more than a gutter is meant to be a container for rain. We're chosen to be conduits of grace to those least likely to believe that grace could ever find them or reach them. But we, like the Pharisees of Jesus' day, we forget. 
And we, too, tried to hold on to that which is always meant to be ours, only as it passes through us from God to others. Remember, conduits are always full when the source to which they're connected is overflowing. And God's grace is always, always, always overflowing. Who do we think that we are, that we can contain or constrain the grace of God, let alone determine who receives it? Well, this little dinner party is heating up. And in what appears to be an attempt to break up the tension a little bit, one of the guests blurts out, Blessed is anyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Well, that statement sounds a little awkward and really strange. But he's actually making a very clear reference to Isaiah and the Messianic table, to which the Jews, or which the Jews uh, for them, represented this culmination of God's salvation. The guest is saying, salvation is for Israel. We are the chosen one. It's good to be us. And he attempts to reiterate how blessed they are all by themselves. Boys, 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 boys. So Jesus tells another story, this time about people who were invited to a banquet and said yes, but then didn't go. Now, as with all good parties, even in Jesus' day, an invite would have been issued to determine who is coming. You need to know how many guests, how much food to prepare. Remember that in first century Palestine, you can't just whip by Costco to pick up another lasagna to throw in the microwave, right? You have to figure out if you're going to kill a lamb or a cow. And that whole process takes time and some preparation, planning. Well, the punch of Jesus' story would have astonished his hearers, even as it does us. For when the servant goes to the house and says, y'all come, supper's on... Suddenly, everybody's busy. I bought a house. I'm going to go look at it. I bought a new car, so I'm going to take it for a test drive. Dude, I've got a date. Really? It's not like this banquet caught you off guard, folks. You knew it was coming. I mean, really, nobody buys property and then inspects it. And nobody buys a car and then takes it for a test drive. And while being newly married exempted a couple from many civic obligations for the first year, it would have been considered just plain rude to renege on something like this. No, each of these responses is just a lame excuse, implying that they would rather do what they're doing than be at the banquet. Just as it would be today, it's an insult to the host. But sadder still... It's really their great loss. They miss it. All of it. Now, Jesus knows these guys. He knows that they see themselves as God's chosen ones, including in God's kingdom hopes for them. And that messianic table that Isaiah referred to years ago, saying this, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a rich feast of food, a feast of well-aged wines, of food rich, filled with marrow, of well-aged wines strained clear. And he will destroy on this mountain the shroud that is cast over all people, the sheet that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The Lord your God will wipe away the tears from all faces, and the disgrace of his people he will take away from all the earth, 
for the Lord has spoken. This is the table of God's salvation. Who wouldn't look forward to that great table? Who doesn't look forward to that great table? The Pharisees have said they want to be at that banquet. But they believe they'll be there because they're entitled to be there. How ironic that here's Jesus in their midst, and rather than celebrate, all they can think to do is to prove how entitled they are and how disqualified everyone else is to be at that table. So they miss Jesus, the Messiah, and they miss that incredible joy that could be theirs. God has showed up for dinner, and you haven't even noticed. They don't have a care in the world associated with the poor, the crippled, the blind, or the lame in their midst, or anywhere else in the world for that matter, unless they need one to trap a certain guest. How God longs to connect with them, to connect them to one another, these two groups. Well, this section of Luke's gospel, and George will continue this uh, section in the next few weeks, it's just full of stories where God reaches out to reunite and connect. As a shepherd in search of lost sheep, the woman in search of her lost coin, the father in search of two very lost sons, a shrewd manager seeking friends who invite them into their homes, the lost disqualified, and the lost entitled. God loves them all. And longs to connect them to himself and to each other because that is what the salvation banquet is all about. It always has been. In the words of Ken Bailey, those who attend God's great banquet do not do so because there's nothing else to do, but because there's simply nothing better to do. So why? Why do we so often miss out on God's great offer of grace? I've thought about that a lot. Do you know that the two most repeated commands in Scripture are fear not and remember? Fear not, I am with you. Fear not, I am your God. Do not fear the other gods. Do not fear the people of this land. Or remember this day the Lord has delivered you. Remember the covenant I made with your ancestors. Remember the commandments of the Lord so that you may live. Remember that you were once slaves in Egypt and that I, the Lord your God, delivered you. Fear not. Remember. I used to think that was just really weird. But the more I thought about it, the more it makes sense. Because at the core of both the entitled and disqualified heart is fear. Fear that it's all about me and not about God. Fear that I need to earn a status of being qualified to receive grace. Recognition that as a conduit, I'm not in control. So in fear, we pursue stuff that we think can, we can control, like stuff and status and relational power. We hope these will give us a sense of control in our own worth. And we forget, we forget that we belong because we are loved. Period. Or maybe we fear that we're somehow disqualified from belonging to God for all that we're not. Maybe we think we've done or are something that's so bad that we could never be included at God's table. God would never want someone like me. I'm such a disappointment. In both instances, we think it's about us and what we make of ourselves. 
And when we do that, we often judge others according to our rubric, a rubric which rarely has room for anyone that looks or sounds different from us, let alone needs help coming to the table. So we miss out on the incredible opportunity to receive by giving, to be rich by letting grace flow through us. We miss the great opportunity to feast on God's incredible love and to know ourselves as God's beloved. Now, in theological terms, the opposite of remember is not forget, it's dismember. Our struggle to make ourselves acceptable to God dismembers us from God's grace just as effectively as a belief that we are unworthy or disqualified from God's love dismembers us. And worse yet, our attempts to control far too often lead us to dismember those who don't meet our standards of belonging with a fervor that makes the Rwandan genocide look like child's play. We do it all the time. We do it in our families. We do it at work. We do it in the church. You name it. God remembers. God remembers. That's what God does. Not because God has a memory problem, but because in grace, God has remembered broken humanity through the, uh, to himself and to one another through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. Grace always makes a way where there is no way. Grace washes away failure. Grace fills us with that which we cannot hold or earn. Grace takes away our need to strive and exclude so that we can feel included. Grace fills us when we receive it and allow it to flow through us and spill out all over the place. Awkward begets awkward. Grace begets grace. Friends, it's God's party. It's God's guest list. It's God's table. It's God's great feast of life as the beloved. Do not fear. Remember and enter in. We pray with me. God, help us this day and all days to live boldly into our calling as those blessed to be a blessing so that at your name every knee will bow and every tongue confess that you are Lord to the glory of the Father for our salvation. And for this we ask in your name. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.